Hello and welcome. My name is Steph Prem and I'm your host for The Mindful Mess, a podcast where we speak with some of Australia's favourite sporting, health and business personalities about how they find balance in today's world. The Mindful Mess is proudly sponsored by Medibank. You're only human and what an incredible human you are. Kicking off, well, hello, Dr. Livy. I'm so excited to see you again and talk to you today. Welcome officially to The Mindful Mess. This is a place where we, you know, discuss or even celebrate the mess, I guess, and the chaos in pursuit of uh, mindfulness and, and balance. So welcome. Thank you so much, Steph. It's such a joy to join you. Thank you. I am a huge fan of your work. I've been following you for a very long time. As you know, I've been to many of your talks, your seminars, your workshops. Um, You've been hugely instrumental in helping me navigate some of my own personal health journeys. So I'm so glad that uh, I get to have you today all to ourselves. But maybe you could start telling us about how you came to be interested in nutrition and biochemistry. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, Well, I grew up in Tamworth in country New South Wales in Australia and we had chickens in the backyard and we grew some of our own food. It was just a small little backyard. But my parents always spoke to me about, you know, you get vitamin C from an orange and that helps you to not get a cold. So it was just a normal sort of conversation point, but not a big deal was made out of it. Tennis was my sport as a kid growing up. And uh, so you sort of get a bit of an idea about nutrition because you want to play well. So there's a purpose to looking after the food that you're eating. Mm. But when I first finished high school, all I knew is that I loved writing. So I originally studied journalism, but then I worked out that I only really liked writing about people's health and human behavior. But then I thought I want to understand human behavior better. So I started psychology and then realized that really it was food psychology and health behaviors that I was most interested in. So that led me to then study nutrition and dietetics. uh, And then I did honors and then did a PhD in biochemistry. So I was at uni for 14 years, which I know makes me sound really thick and like a failed everything, but I just loved learning. Patient. I would say more so patient. (laughs) (laughs) anyway it was a lot of fun of course as well but um yeah so when those 14 years at uni gave me such a solid foundation particularly in science and then I've worked with people one-on-one for over 20 years now so either in my own private practice or I've worked in some big health retreats throughout Australia um and have my own business now so it's um Yeah, I've combined essentially my 14 years at uni with those 20 plus years of clinical experience to create what I call a three-pillar approach. And the three pillars are biochemistry, nutrition, and emotions. So I look at literally everything through those three lenses. And when whether I'm speaking to a a group of people, whether it's just having a conversation with someone one-on-one, I want to hear what they care about, what's making them sad, what's frustrating them about their body, because I believe the body is this most extraordinary vehicle of communication, trying to wake us up to get us to make changes that we're not otherwise listening to. So whenever there are things with someone's body that makes them sad or frustrated, I encourage them to sort of think, okay, it's really feedback that I need to eat, drink, move, think, breathe, believe, or perceive in some kind of new way. So it's th- that's essentially the essence of my approach. And uh, I feel really fortunate that I get to do work in the world that I love and that I continue to learn from hugely. It's amazing that you've been able to combine everything. And I, I was unaware of your journalism background. And it's funny that you started out, you said writing, speaking of which you've 13 times best-selling author. I mean, your titles alone should have women running to your work, I think, with things like (laughs) exhausted to energised, running women's syndrome, uh, accidentally overweight. I I mean, what's what's your personal favourite book that you've written or which book do you think has had the greatest impact? So Women's Wellness Wisdom, I wrote that book in 2016 and it's a big overview of women's health. That has been really popular, but it still comes second to rushing woman syndrome. So I wrote Mm. rushing woman syndrome in 2011, which is what, 12 years ago, 
which that's just astonishing to me. So I wrote Rushing Woman Syndrome. It's not a medical condition, obviously. It's just the name of my book. Um, But it was the name I gave to what I was seeing unfold in women's health because when there was a really big shift, women just used to turn up to appointments and I noticed around sort of between about 2009, 2010, there were massive changes in women's behaviour and I had to look into it. And I felt that stress and our perceptions of pressure and urgency were driving so much dysfunction in the body. So not disease, but just taking away from the quality of women's lives by because stress hormones obviously contribute to lousy sleep. They can contribute to lousy digestion. So we always feel bloated or we have erratic bowel movements that are unpredictable or it might be challenges with menstruation or a really challenging transition through perimenopause. Mm. And stress is not always at the heart of those things, but almost always it is. And I wanted to dive in and sort of look at the biochemistry of that, the nutritional aspects of that, but particularly the mindset aspects of what on earth leads us to rush in that way and essentially say to the universe, I'm prepared to sacrifice my own health. Mm. Is it in service of others or is it more like servitude? Because when we're in genuine service, when it comes from when we are acting from a place of true, genuine contribution, that's energizing. Mm. But when we are doing things to try to please others, so when we're doing things essentially that it's really outside our value system and it's because we we care deeply about other people, but we care very much what they think of us. And that's the big kicker because when you're in true service, you're doing it from a place of no, there's no expectation of what the other person will think of you. You just want to give. Whereas I describe it more like servitude when you're doing it out of duty, which is really depleting. So rushing woman syndrome was essentially exploring that and helping to offer women strategies to change that both on a physical level and from a mindset perspective. And that's what's driving the rush and the speed. And is it just women? No, no, it's not. But I wanted to focus on women because the psychology is quite different for for women. Mm. So the mass when I talk about masculine and feminine, I don't mean genders, I mean the essence of that. So the masculine responds to challenge and the feminine responds to praise. So, and we have both energies within us. Obviously, there's usually one that's dominant for people. So when we, and so for a lot of, a lot of the feminine energy is pursuing that praise. You're amazing at this, you're amazing at that, but it's essentially so that we feel secure. It's so that we feel approved of so much that we do without us realizing it comes from a place of pursuing approval wow. and we we you can understand the need for love acceptance um and approval when we're little because as little human babies we need those adults in our world to give us food and clothing and shelter so we've got to stay in their favor if you like But as adults, we know that a life with love and approval in it is really lovely and it feels comfortable and uplifting, but we don't actually need it to survive because we can get our own food and clothing and shelter. But I, my, my, my work is very much, and the things that I've studied have very much shown me that we still live in the pursuit of approval, even as adults. And uh, until we address that, it'll drive all of our behavior. So interesting. I'm it, I'm I'm so glad you mentioned rushing women's syndrome because it's my favorite title of yours, and I think it should just be a compulsory read for all women in school. Really, uh, for me, it's up there with um, I would have to say Louise Hayes. You can save your life. It's one of those books that you just have to have o- o- on your bookshelf. But I, I mean, I I really want to know, other than I guess the clinical work on what you've seen, or I guess the changes you said you've seen, what really inspired the book, I mean, assuming you were a rushing woman once yourself yes, or still are. Of course. <laughs> You've got to become one to recover from it and then be able to offer some ideas. It's so true. I, yeah, it's sort of that that um, that concept, and I've heard this shared in so many ways, that in the beginning you feel like life happens to you, then you mm. realise life happens for you, and then life starts happening through you and then you start showing up for life. So I felt that 
yeah, my experience of, of rushing woman syndrome was very much so I could sort it out and then offer, and I haven't got all the answers, of course, but offer some ideas about how to start to change it for yourself uh, in that book. So, yeah, you've got to, I've got, I had to become one to write the book, Steph, definitely. <laughs> we all have to walk the walk and talk the talk. Yeah, <laughs> so that we can, exactly. we're going to un- understand it. I, I, I know from, from, from witnessing you in action that you, it comes from a very, very true place. In, um, I, I mean, I've heard you often refer to the impact of, you know, which I think we can all relate to, the never-ending to-do list, you know, um, seeking balance if you can in today's busy world. I mean, do you, do you believe it's really possible? I think what we define as balance changes day to day, probably even moment to moment. So there are days when... I can do six podcasts recording, um, do two recordings for my own work, and that's exactly where I want to be. That's exactly what I want to be doing. It's energising. It's uplifting. I'm excited by it. And then there would be another day where that's my schedule and I'd think, what have I done to myself? Why did I book that in like that? So, and I think so we, we... So I think the pursuit of balance is when we feel like we don't have balance, it's feedback going, something needs to shift. Mm. So I, t- I feel like we have lots of different personalities inside of us and um, I don't mean in a schizophrenic way, I mean that there are different aspects to us as women that, and men have this as well, of course, where so one of my characters I would say to you is Dr Libby. So she has a set of traits. She feels very responsible though. But she uh, is, that's obviously the health sort of persona. Then there's another persona in me that I would describe as uh, earth watch. So I I don't like waste. I'll, you know, I don't, would never leave a light on when I'm not in the room, you know, that sort of of person. But then I have this other character that I would describe as love bug. I just love love. I see, I look for it, I, I see it everywhere. Um, and so I might be going out and think, oh, and I love gorgeous lighting, soft yellow lighting. And so I'll think, oh, I'll leave that lamp on because that'll be so beautiful when I walk in, when I get back home and I get to the back door and then I've got to run back and turn the light off because love bug wanting that light on, Earthwatch won't allow it, so she'll override it. <laughs> but then there's, I would say there's another character I have called the Aussie Larrikin because I loved sitting on the back steps in Tamworth and having a beer with my dad at the end of the day. And I loved, you know, sitting around and listening to him and his mates, you know, banter about and just listen to that kind of chatter. So I think when we say we want more balance, it's because one of those less responsible personalities is not one of our sort of the, the, where we, where we connect to probably having more fun, it's just not getting enough time in the sun. We're not living that as much. So whenever I have that flying to my head, I think, oh, I need to go see a band or I need to go and sit on the back step and have a beer or whatever it is just to, you know, bring that perception of balance back in. Back into into kilter, if you will. Yeah, I think we can all relate to the many characters of of Dr. Libby or, or, ourse- or ourselves very yeah. much. Very I share that to prompt others to think what, what would my characters be? Yes, I was already, I was thinking about it, who would play those different characters and what <laughs> what roles they play, whether they be good or bad, which ones take me out of balance, in and out of balance. You're, yeah. you're spot on. It's a beautiful way of, of looking at it. And, I mean, you mentioned, you know, music or a band or, I mean, how do you, you know, genuinely implement balance or, or mindfulness for yourself in those moments where you just feel like, you know, it might be a little bit out of, out of reach? What, 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 uh, how do you, you know, genuinely implement? Uh, two things. My, I use my breath and mm. I shift and I shift my focus to nature. So if I'm at a, I work near a, I almost always work near a window and so I will look out at the trees. I'll be able to see a bird. If I can't, I'll look at the sky. That slows me instantly and brings me back to being very present. Um, if I'm, I might be on an aeroplane and I'm working and I feel my heart rate start to go up because of something that I'm focused on, 
So it feels all, the chemistry feels a bit intense. I just use my breath, extend my exhalation, slow it all down, and feel my body. So I will go to my feet and notice what what are my feet doing. I'll notice what my hands are doing. I'll notice whether my shoulders are up around my ears. So really anchor myself in my physical body because that's I feel a really simple way to get very present and become very aware of what's happening right here, right now. And it's, and I don't know if I've ever, when, whenever I've done that, I I feel, I don't, I try not to use always and never, I try not to use extreme language, but I can't remember a time where I haven't smiled after mm. a very brief moment of that. And it's like this reassurance to your physical structure that it's all okay. Even when it's, feels so challenging even when it's truly genuinely challenging like I mean really really tough stuff's going on you'd have those little mindfulness practices that bring you back to the present moment and there's a smile at the end of it no matter what's going on and just that just blows my mind Mm. not a conscious smile it's not oh I need to smile now it just happens no I I I totally know what you mean I I remember we the we were working with a sports psychologist years ago and it always stuck with me um, pre-race jitters. So when you had those moments of overwhelm or or stress before a big race event or a big sporting event, and uh, I remember this sports psychologist telling us that it only takes three to five breaths to reconnect to your uh, parasympathetic nervous system. So and it's exactly what you're saying, that connection to the body, that connection to the breath. And it's amazing. Like you said, even when you don't, it's the last thing you feel like doing. Um but it's insane how quickly you can drop back in and find that 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 moment of presence or that moment of calm or like you said just that that sense of a smile or whatever the best way to describe it is yeah whatever yeah yeah and it can mm. completely change your outlook in that moment mm. and it helps you to to i think get back to a more of an equilibrium sort of state mm. because when we're in that worked up state, we're often perceiving or, or unconsciously connected to not the, the belief that we're not enough. We're not working hard enough. We're not giving enough. We're not a good enough friend or colleague or daughter or whatever. There's there's this underlying not enoughness, I think, to when we get out of that place. I'm not a good enough competitor. I'm not... Mm. Whatever, and and so when we use a mindfulness practice, the breath I find is obviously very powerful. Just as your coach described, it it brings you back to more of the truth. You, it's like you get back in touch with not from a you know a, a, a dominant egotistical kind of place, like oh yeah, I'm so enough. It's just this deep knowing. It's all okay. I'm okay. It's all okay. So yeah. true. A better place of trust, almost back in, yes. in yourself Perfect. when you when you lose when you lose yourself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, speaking of stress, which I believe we could talk about all day, is <laughs> the you know recent statistics that have come out of Australia for anxiety disorders are, are pretty frightening. Um, it's the most common type of mental health disorder at the moment, affecting one in six uh, Australians, which is three point three million. Um, you know, how do you believe you know, more, I guess, as a collective, not just a, as you and I, we can better adapt and manage stress, you know, overwhelm all these controlling emotions like anxiety and or depression? They're horrific statistics, aren't they, Steph? Mm, frightening. Um, can I just share a little backstory and then answer your question? Please. So I wrote, back in 2019, I wrote a book called The Invisible Load and Prior to doing that, I ran some focus groups with women of different ages. And in the, the youngest group were aged between 18 and 25. And when I asked what their biggest stressors were, in that age group, the most the two most common ones that came out mm-hmm. was their body image and social media. Oh. And then when I share that with older groups, I'll be honest. I can feel the judgment in the room. They either laugh or touch like, oh, because they don't understand how social media could stress anybody out because they use social. So I'm talking this, the, the next group up was 35 to 55 years of age. 
they don't understand how social media could be a stress because they use it to catch up with their friends who live on the other side of the world or to watch funny dog videos. So they use it for entertainment or to socialise. And when I asked that group, the 35 to 55-year-olds, what stressed them out, one of the common answers was running late. So if you think about running late, it's not in and of itself stressful. You get stressed, we get stressed about running late because we might be going to a conference and you don't want to miss the first speaker. So it can be, I think, FOMO. But really what's behind it most often is we're worried about what the person who will be on the receiving end of our running late is going to think of us. And so if we use that insight not only to, let's say we're running late for a meeting, that insight helps you to then show up differently to that meeting. Instead of bursting in with intensity because you're all worked up that you're running late, you understand it's because you care. And you understand that you care also what your boss or your colleagues think of you. So that is going to foster a very different conversation than if you just sit in your stress going, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed. You're going to probably have a conversation with your boss or your colleague and say, I'm so sorry I was late. I do my best to be on time. It's important to me that you know that I care about my job very much, that I work as hard as I can as a fish. Like it's going to change the whole, and no one who, if you're pouring your heart out to someone saying that, no one's going to stand there and go, oh, well, your job's in jeopardy. You know, you're a bit of a disaster. No one, they're going to be like, well, thank you for caring and thanks for sharing that with me and they'll appreciate it. And then you feel better. They're happy. So if we track back to the younger group, it's exactly the same thing. Social they they list social media as one of their biggest stresses because they use social media as a way of getting approval. They are using it as it, it, they worry what others are thinking of them. It's the same as the thirty-five to fifty-five year olds running late. It's the same model. It's just that you think on the surface you don't realize that's really what it's about. So. There's very, very real and genuine stress, obviously, going on in the world, and there's very real and genuine stress in people's lives. However, there is also a huge amount of stress that we create for ourselves because of how we think. And I think anxiety is sometimes stemming from very real and genuine stress, and sometimes it stems from the way that we think. And where and sometimes it's a combination of both. And we need to, I wish it was taught in schools, that we actually had, this is the work of uh, Dr. Daniel Kahneman, who he's a psychologist, but he won the Nobel Prize for economics, weirdly. But he, he his work was the very first work that showed that the, in within the human brain with two thought systems, and he just calls them thought system one and thought system two, I'd call them old brain and new brain so that people remember it nice and easily. Mm. So our old brain is unconscious. We're actually not aware of what it does, what it creates, until we use our second thought system, our new brain, to actually look at what it's done. And so when it comes to having loads of anxious feelings, when old brain, it's unconscious, but it generates a feeling and it works at lightning speed. It runs off patterns and associations that we don't even know we have until we go and dig into this stuff. So we've created meanings about who we must be for someone to have treated us like that in the past or for someone to have done that or not done that or have gotten that look on their face or not responded, whatever. So we have, but we don't realise that from things that happen, we create meanings and from those meanings we create stories and those thoughts if we don't correct them, we'll become beliefs about who we must be for people to have done X, Y, Z in our life. So we have a part of our brain called the reticular activating system that just goes looking for evidence of everything that we think and we miss all the evidence of what is not true. So if you have a belief that people can't be trusted, you'll miss all the examples of how they can be. Mm. If you think there, if you have a belief that there aren't enough hours in the day, that will be your experience. You will live your life with such intensity 
feeling like there aren't enough hours in the day, whereas the person who sits at the desk beside you might have a belief that all the important things always get done. And so not only do they get more done, but they do it in a calmer way without hurting their health, for example. My dad grew up in Tamworth and he still lives there. But when he was growing up, of course, there were no traffic lights. And now, of course, there's traffic lights and he hates them. And he has a belief that he only ever gets red lights. And so whenever whenever I go and visit he and mum and I'm driving him to town and we get a green light, I can't help myself, I always go, Dad, green light. And every single time he goes, first one. And he's not even joking. He literally has no memory of green lights yeah. ever. He, he only ever gets Never seen anyway. it before. Never seen it no. before. Yeah. But, but, that's, but that's, that's essentially what our brain does. So we just look for all the evidence of how it's true. So when So when our old brain is firing off, and it creates a feeling at lightning speed from something that we've encountered, we will then live as if that's the truth until our new brain, our second thought system, which is conscious, it's optional, we don't have to use it, but it uses logic and reasoning to examine things. So we might be in the supermarket and we can see someone we know coming towards us, I'll call her Mrs Smith, And the thing that happens is Mrs. Smith puts her head down and walks straight past us and doesn't speak. So in that moment, your old brain goes, oh, my goodness, Mrs. Smith doesn't like me. I've let her down. Our kids are at school together. They've probably had a fight. She thinks I'm the world's worst parent. In other words, we perceive some form of disapproval coming from Mrs. Smith. Now, we don't know we've done that because we don't stop there in the supermarket and go, oh, what just happened? You know, Mm. we, we just keep going. But what we might notice then is that when we leave the supermarket, we can't wait to devour the packet of biscuits we just bought where normally we'd only eat two biscuits, but suddenly we're going to smash the whole packet. Or it's two o'clock in the afternoon and you are now obsessed with cracking open a bottle of wine and not just having a glass, but drinking the whole lot. So, or, or yeah, so th- there's some sort of response. But again, we usually don't examine that. Because if in that moment we brought our new brain in and thought, okay, I wonder what just happened. Mrs. Smith walked past me. She didn't speak to me. She did look like she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. I wonder what's going on for Mrs. Smith. And so then you've shifted your focus from yourself, your concern for her, and you might think, I'll go around and check in on her and see what's happening. And if on the odd chance, she, you have upset her, she's got some sort of issue, she will tell you then and you can sort it out. Mm. But nine times out of ten you'll go around and say, I saw you at the supermarket today and you didn't speak. Is everything okay? She might say, oh, I hadn't had a shower that morning and I was really hoping to not run into anyone. Or mm-hmm. I'd, been, I'd been crying my eyes out because, you know, my sister just got diagnosed with something. I've been bawling my eyes out and I just, I, I wasn't, I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable to, to speak to anyone. So we we remain very, uh, as adults, unfortunately, because we don't understand how we, we're not taught about these thought systems, mm. a lot of us remain very egocentric and we literally think that everything revolves around us and we think that the way people are, whether they're happy or sad or cranky, we think it's because of us when very occasionally they might be responding to us in that way, but it's mostly a reflection of what they're experiencing in that moment. And it might not be fair and it might not be acceptable, but it's a reflection of them, not us. Mm. And so I feel that we would make some inroads into this these horrific statistics around all these anxious feelings and people really suffering. I feel like we would make a lot of inroads into that if we understood how we think and applied some of these techniques. Now, I'm not saying that solves it because some of it comes from very real and genuine stress. Of course. But there is a huge amount of that anxiety that's coming from worrying about what other people think of us. And we need to begin to understand or if you pause and think when you were growing up, how many people did you care what they thought of you? I bet you could count them on two hands. Mm. Would have your parents, your coach, your best friend. For me, I, there was, you know, my best friend, my, my German teacher. He was so amazing and I really wanted to do well. Yes. <laughs> there would have been a 
there would have been a boy in that mixture, you know, like, but it was, they were real people and you could count them on your two hands. Whereas now people care about what thousands of people think of them and most of them they've never even met. And do they deserve that space in your heart? Do they? Yeah. So I feel like we need to, we're always going to care what others think of us. We're human. However, I think we need to be very selective as to who we allow to fulfill those roles in our life. Oh, beautifully said. And take up that that space, like you said, in your heart, your body, in your brain. Uh, it's it's sucking <laughs> so much life, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I, I think you touched on it in your story anyway. I mean, going straight to the crackers and the bottle of wine, I think answers the question somewhat. But I'll, I'll dive in anyway. Is can you explain how your you talked about earlier your three pillars of health? So biochemistry, emotions, and, and nutrition. How how they could be directly linked to to say mental health or anxiety, as an example. Like I said, I think you touched on it slightly with the biscuits, but I still think people might not see the link. They might not understand that that could be an emotional connection. Yeah, yeah. So. When we have one of the questions in my, that I pose in my work on a daily basis is why do we do what we do even though we know what we know? Because it's not a lack of knowledge that's going to lead someone to smash a whole packet of biscuits. No one's going to do that thinking, I'll feel so great after I do this. <laughs> we do it and we don't necessarily understand why we've done it. And obviously there's a massive difference between having two biscuits and having the whole packet. And it's the whole packet that I'm talking about here. So when when we make a choice like that, quite often what we do is, well, firstly, we judge ourselves. We'll go, I ate too many biscuits. We then put a comma in that sentence and go, I'm hopeless, I'm pathetic, I have no willpower. Yet most of the thoughts we think, they actually aren't true. But again, we're not taught to question our thoughts because after we think that, we don't sit there and then think, is that actually true? <laughs> you just keep going. And so, and as I said, a thought that you repeatedly think and don't question becomes a belief. And so then you actually believe that you are hopeless and pathetic and have no willpower, none of which is true. So when we eat too many biscuits, if we could pause and then go, I wonder what led me to do that, because curiosity, judgment shuts us down and makes us blind to any kind of insight. But the minute we have bring curiosity into the scenario, we open to learning something. So I wonder what led me to do that. Is it biochemical? So did I smash that whole packet of biscuits because I didn't for afternoon tea because I didn't have an adequate lunch because I read this thing and it said be really low carb and so I had no carbs for lunch. I basically just ate green leaves and clearly my biscuit smashing was because I was literally so hungry. So maybe if I had some carbohydrate with my lunch or some protein or some fat or whatever, but if I had a different lunch, maybe that shift would lead me to not smash a whole packet of biscuits because my body wouldn't be searching for all that glucose. So it could be biochemical or nutritional. But when you say I I ate a whole packet of biscuits, I wonder what led me to do that, it could be that the answer is, well, I'd just come out of a meeting And my colleagues said X, Y, Z, and I can now see that that hurt my feelings because the story I created around that is that they think that I'm not a very hard worker. They think I'm lazy or inefficient. In other words, we perceive some kind of disapproval coming from someone else. So when we eat, when when we eat in a way and we feel like we want to judge ourselves because we know better and we're trying really hard to consistently, not perfectly, but consistently look after ourselves with food and drink. When we don't do that and it's unexpected, so you might plan to do it. You might be catching up with your favourite person on a Friday night and you're having takeaway and sharing a bottle of wine. Like that's that's on purpose. Mm. What I'm talking about here is when you start eating and you feel like you can't stop or you consistently make lousy choices and you don't understand why you keep doing that. It feels a bit out of your control. That's when you want to use that question. I wonder what led me to do that. Was it biochemical or nutritional? Mm. So you might, yeah, as I said, change your lunch or was it emotional? Did you create a story about something that just happened? And it, and that, and did and also then is it true? Like so did, did your colleague actually, does your colleague actually think that you're lazy or incompetent or whatever meaning you've created because you might need to go and have a conversation with them or 
can you just sit there and giggle at yourself or have compassion for yourself and go, wow, this is a story I make up. I feel like people judge me, people see me in this really horrible way. I do it all the time. Wow. And I can see that it's come from X, Y, Z. That might feel too big to unravel and unpack yourself. I really, it's time I saw a counsellor. I need to talk to someone and talk through this. And so then you're actively doing something about these behaviours that you feel powerless to change. Instead of actively unraveling the uh, unraveling the biscuits and and the wine, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. It, it is. It's the same thing, but looking at it through a completely different lens, which I think is really really helpful. So if if we're if we're speaking about bad habits, uh, which you know we're we're all guilty of, um, and I mean your your area of expertise is is nutrition, of course. So let's talk about sugar. Because I think it 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 taps into uh, everyone's bad habits at, at some point. I mean, sugar has the same addictive properties as as you know cocaine, which everyone knows is is bad for you. But I think people don't put sugar in the same basket. You know, they wouldn't think it's it's doing as much harm. So, you know, can you explain what some of the consequences of sugar addiction are on our health? Um, and you know, things that we may not even realize. Yeah. It's a really big one, Steph, and it's the one thing that I think people today struggle to change the most. So firstly, when we consume sugar, it actually lights up, it leads us to produce dopamine, which is partly why it's addictive. So very similar pathways for addiction to some of those other drugs you just mentioned occur in the brain when we are consuming sugar. But when we start to eat sugar, it'll give us a dopamine hit. But then when, if we just keep eating the same amount of sugar, the dopamine response becomes less and less. Mm. So we then seek more sugar to get that same dopamine hit. And a study, I've seen it in patients, and I remember reading a study that was done with mice where they gave them free access for 12 hours, so essentially waking hours, to a sucrose sugar-rich solution water. And uh, for 21 days. So they had access to it for 12 hours and then it was removed. So they could have as much as they wanted. And they started out having 37 mils in those 12 hours. But by the back end of the three-week experiment, they were having 120 mils. (gasps) So they just kept dosing more and more and more, which is what humans do. And Mm. they were looking at the dopamine response as well that the mice produced. And it was, they were required, what's, the amount of dopamine they produced on 37 mils, after three weeks it took 120 mils to get that same response. And so when we want to make a change to our sugar consumption, because you'd literally have to have your head buried in the sand to not know that it's not serving our health when we eat excessive amounts of it, but it's people feel so powerless to change it. That dopamine response is one of the biggest biochemical reasons that it's so tricky. So you might make a decision that you're going to stop but within a few hours or certainly within a day or two, you're, you're back there because you're desperate for that dopamine hit. So finding other ways to get to get that dopamine hit, which essentially is it, it's a pleasure experience. It's We get it from things that uplift us. 30 minutes of exercise will do it. Sorry, say again. Oh, I've lost your sound. Oh, I lost you. The feel-good hormone. Yeah, exactly. So when so but 30 minutes of exercise, it doesn't even have to be intense exercise, will increase dopamine. Tyrosine-rich foods, chicken, bananas, both contain tyrosine. So there are loads of whole real foods that'll that help with your own dopamine production. So, but but knowing that that's part of it mm. is incredibly important if you want to make a change. To, to your patterns of consumption. The second thing, though, is more along this emotional pillar. So when we struggle emotionally to make a change to our sugar consumption patterns, I'll often describe it as someone being a love bug. So they don't necessarily realise how addicted they are to being approved of. And what we do across each day is think something happened. So if I put something happened and I put that in one box 
And then in a separate box, I write the word meaning. So our brain comes up with a meaning like we've been talking about. And then what we do is we merge those two things. We merge the what happened. Mrs. Smith didn't speak to me. We merge that with the, the meaning we've created about who we must be. So our brain is just doing that all day, every day from I haven't heard back from that person on text message. That person hasn't phoned me back. That person hasn't emailed me back. My colleague just walked past my office and they always stop and speak to me and today they didn't. Mm. Like, like it's just the list just goes on and on. So we essentially what we do is we stack experiences across our day where we unconsciously perceive the disapproval of others and because in our nervous system we then are worried that we won't survive because when we were in tribes, if you were ostracised from your tribe, because they no longer approved of you, there was a risk that you might not survive. Mm. So this is, it's a very ancient chemistry. So as soon as we feel disapproved of, we worry that we, on, on a very deep level, we worry we won't survive until we really thoroughly examine this in ourselves. And so that will, that, that ultimate fear will then lead you to go and smash a lot of sugar, <laughs> mm. to numb yourself, to distract yourself, to give yourself some momentary pleasure because you're so deeply sad or frightened that essentially you're disapproved of because you created that meaning, you made up a story that 50 interactions during the day meant that you weren't approved of or that you weren't enough. So that's another big driver of uh, of people over-consuming sugar. And when I say over-consuming it, I've actually created a course about this Called Shake Off Sugar to help right. people understand all this, to help people understand all of this stuff, and to give people very practical tools about how to break these types of patterns. And in the course, I do a demonstration where I'll someone will say to me, "Oh, I don't eat that badly," and I've spooned out a day of sugar where someone says they don't eat that badly, and in no time at all, it's sixty teaspoons. So, just from processed food, essentially. Yeah, well, that might not even taste sweet. Yes. Mm. I mean, I've got so many clients I can send your way that are, are all struggling with the same thing. When you say you do that example, where would you say that most of the sugar in in everyone's diet is coming from, you know, and, and how can they avoid it? Like what should they be looking out for that maybe they don't even realise is part of the problem? Unfortunately, it's pretty much... It's it's the majority of processed, ultra-processed and packaged processed. food, pretty much, yeah. And so when we think that there's nothing wrong with, there's natural sugars obviously present in food. It's in fruit, it's in corn, it's in honey. And as humans, we've consumed that stuff for a very long time. It's the processed and packaged food that's so new. And just to give you, it's really hard to get data from a decent amount of time in the past, but it's estimated that in Australia, certainly in Australia and New Zealand in the 1930s, people ate between half a kilo and one kilo of sugar per person per year. Mm. And now it's between 35 and 45 kilos per person per year. Oh, that's just on average. But let me, I'll tease, yeah, it's massive. I'll tease that out a bit for you. So the World Health Organization say that six teaspoons a day is okay. Okay. Now, where, uh, so in 2021, research out of New Zealand, so what's 2021, so two years ago, research out of New Zealand showed that adults were consuming on average 37 teaspoons per day. So that's 31 excessive teaspoons per day. And that works out to be, I'm trying to remember my maths here, it works out to be, I think, about 124 extra grams per day. Wow. And it ends up leading wow. to it ends up leading to forty five kilos per person per year, and it's not so we're not suddenly there's na, there's sugars naturally present in fruits in vegetables as we talked as I mentioned, but we're not eating more of those things. We're actually eating fewer of those things. Mm. All of that extra is coming from processed and packaged foods, and and that's the problem. We've made nutrition really complicated, and it doesn't need to be. Yeah, we have we have evolved eating whole real food and our. Yeah, some people need, you know, very specific direction within that. They might have fructose malabsorption. They might be gluten intolerant. So there's lots of, you know, tweaks that sometimes need to be made. I get that. But as a broad blanket concept, it's the processed and packaged food that has undone us. And not that long ago, it didn't exist. And then 
we used to eat those sorts of foods at birthday parties, mm. but now they're part of every day. And it's the everydayness that's so harmful to us because it's literally what we do every day that impacts our health. It's not what we do occasionally. So none of what I'm talking about is saying don't ever eat those things that you love. It's how often you do it. The problem with sugar as I described with the little example with the mice and certainly what I have seen in a lot of my patients over the years, you start eating it and you can't stop. Whereas with other things, you can it's a lot easier to just make a decision, I'm not going to have that anymore, and you, and you feel like it's pretty easy to stop it. But with sugar, it's hard. Yeah, well, I think also what I hear from a lot of my clients too is they're swapping it for, say, a substitute or an artificial sweetener, um, which, you know, could be equally as harmful. Yeah, yeah. So, again, you know, artificial sweeteners were first released to try to, uh, to, try to address really the caloric side, the calorie side of, of what sugar was delivering. Mm. And we now and and the blood glucose response and the insulin response, but we now understand that a lot of them actually still drive an insulin response. Some of them have been shown to have carcinogenic properties. So again, when there's anything new that's synthetic that's introduced to the food supply, it has to be in the food supply for quite a long time before we understand whether it's going to be okay or not. So. You can choose to be a guinea pig with things like that or not, and mm. uh, it's we we it, it can take a it can take time, but you know it took sort of twenty years before they understood that some of those artificial sweeteners were really concerning. I mean, you you touched on it with the um, caloric intake, and I think people understand or, or relate sugar to weight loss specifically. But what are some of the other uh, you know? health problems that we're going to have down the line that people may not see as a direct link to to their sugar intake or their diet right now? Insulin resistance is by far and away the biggest challenge for so many people with their health. So essentially, so people understand what that is. When you consume, when you, when you consume carbohydrates, whether they're starches or sugars, that all get broken down into glucose. That glucose then moves from the digestive system across into the blood, so therefore the amount of glucose in the blood goes up. And the body knows that if there's too much glucose in the blood, it will damage the lining of blood vessels, so the pancreas releases insulin and grabs that glucose and starts to move it out of your blood, and the first place it takes it to is to your liver and your muscles, and it stores it there as glycogen, as fuel for later. But if there's more glucose that's still got to come out of the blood, the insulin will take it and store it in your body fat cells, which have an infinite capacity to expand in size, which is why insulin is considered a growth hormone or why it can drive fat storage quite profoundly. So insulin is a beautiful hormone when we make the right amount of it. So let's say your blood sugar is at five and we need five units of insulin to deal with that when we have a healthy insulin response. But when someone becomes insulin resistant, the blood glucose might be at five, but you need 10 units of insulin to deal with that. So you now need twice the amount of insulin to deal with what five units once did. Mm. So when we when we have high circulating levels of insulin consistently, it forever signals fat storage to the body. So you will, you cannot, you literally, no matter how many calories you want to count, you're never going to override that messaging of insulin, which is store, storage, storage, storage. If that stays like that, if the insulin stays elevated, what it then goes on to disrupt is another hormone called leptin, and leptin is involved in satiety. So when we eat, the leptin is supposed to go up and let your digestive system and your brain know that you've had enough to eat, so you stop eating, and so then the leptin can come down, the insulin can come down, and everything gets back to homeostasis, back to balance. But when we are insulin-resistant, longer term, it can lead to what's called leptin resistance. So it's as if the body has gone deaf to the leptin satiety regulating signals and and abilities. And then if we add another layer of biochemistry to this, that then disrupts thyroid function. So when we're leptin resistant, the thyroid makes T4 and T3. T4 is the inactive thyroid hormone. T3 is the metabolism-driving, temperature-regulating active hormone, that's T3. But when we're leptin-resistant, T4, instead of getting converted into T3, a lot of the T4 gets converted into another substance called reverse T3, 
which can still bind to the to T3 receptors, but it doesn't do the same metabolism driving effects that T3 actually does. So when we regularly overconsume sugar, it leads us usually into that insulin resistant place. We get belly fat, it which can make us sad or frustrated or feel like it's not fair because it doesn't really make sense why that's there. Um, despite our best efforts, that can then lead to leptin resistance, to the thyroid being disrupted. There's a huge amount of inflammation that's going on in the background when all of this is going on as well. And so that, that's, and if I go off on another very brief tangent, Steph, when we have that belly fat there because of insulin resistance, it leads us to produce, we have, there's a lot of cells in the body that make an enzyme called aromatase, but belly fat cells are very, very good at making aromatase. And aromatase converts androgens like testosterone into estrogens and usually in a pretty problematic form of estrogen. So it's the, the, the ripple effect. And that of leads the to excess. disease and that leads to, yeah. it, it sends everything out of out of whack essentially and is, is what drives our body to disease, not health. Exactly. <laughs> So And so much of it starts with that excessive sugar consumption leading to that insulin resistance, which then disrupts so much in, inside of us. So addressing insulin resistance, well, seeing the prevalence of that was one of my biggest motivators to create this sugar course because, and also to give people not just, you know, don't eat it, not just give them that message because that doesn't work just if you just say don't eat it. We've got to look at what it's doing for you. When do you use sugar? Is it the dopamine thing that's mostly your driver? Is it in response to emotional pain that you might not even be fully aware of mm. that's there? So let's, yeah, so we dive into all of that in, in the course. Well, I, I'm, I mean, I live with someone who um, who lives for a cheeky Coca-Cola, so <laughs> I might have to sign them up to this course. <laughs> But if if there's an argument in in our household, often which is the lesser uh, lesser evil, Coke Zero or Diet Coke, or not at all, which is I'm sure you can see where I would stand in this in yes. this argument. Yes. But what would your take be on that one, <laughs> Doctor Livy? I'm interested. Oh my goodness! Does it have to be that drink? Or should I just send? Them, should I just send them straight to the course? <laughs> Definitely. If I had to pick between artificial sweeteners and sugar, I'd pick sugar. Wow. My preference, though, is neither. Yeah. <laughs> Just get your sugar through whole real food, you know, make little bliss balls using chopped up dates and things or, yeah, eat a banana. Um, don't be frightened of a banana. That has been a big hit, hit in, the, in our house, the chocolate bliss balls. So we'll start there. We'll start there. We've got to start Perfect. small, like. Start small. I mean, we could talk about it all day, but I will be sending so many people in in the direction of your course. I mean, you continue to educate, inspire, and mentor so many women uh, around the world, but I'd love to know who inspires you the most. Oh, that's so lovely. My mum, she is the kindest. She's the kindest woman on the planet. I Yeah, I got the mother jackpot. I don't quite know how she mothered me the way that she did. She will tell you that she's not maternal. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, but she's the most mother, mother <laughs> on the planet. When I was 17, I remember this very clearly. When I was 17, I got a scholarship to go to school in Germany for three months and I wasn't expected to get it. And she would have been terrified. She'd not left Australia at that point. And I hadn't left Australia at that point. There were no mobile phones, there were no emails, and there she was, you know, I'm hopping on a plane to go and live with a, a family who were complete strangers um, and go to school over there for three months. And wow. she was just full of light and life and encouragement, not over the top, just, you know, what, you know, how, how special, go and have an amazing time. And there was no spare money, so it was a really big deal, which I had no, she didn't make me aware of any of that at the time. That would have been very, very confronting, and yet she never let me feel like that was confronting for her. So she's, she's the most, yeah, generous, unconditionally loving human being. Uh, yeah. 
she's she's blows my mind. So to I to have uh, the essence of her present, she's still alive, but to have the essence of her in in my life and the way I conduct myself, I'm mindful of of doing that every day because I don't know how she did it with the other stuff going on in her life. Incredible. I think you learnt selflessness at a very young age. It sounds from from <laughs> from someone quite incredible and strong. What would you say, um, I'm conscious of your time, we, we have to wrap up soon, but what would you say, what's one health question that you think all women should ask themselves? That's a good question. Um, what do I really care about? Because when you ask what do I really care about, it helps you to, we have so many choices in a day to make and what do I really care about helps you to get in touch with your values. So, so many lousy health choices come from the feeling that we don't have time. But when we say I don't have time for that, you know, someone might say, oh, I live on takeaway because I literally don't have time to cook dinner. What you're really saying is that's just not a priority for me right now. That's what I don't have time means. I'm not prioritising that. Whereas when you work out what you value, and I don't, when I say values, I don't mean ethical preferences like kindness or generosity. I mean, what does your life literally demonstrate that you value? So if when you say, what do I care about? What do I value? Look at what you choose to do with your day. And are you content with that? Or is there, are there some tweaks that need to be made? Because you can actually see, well, no, actually, I do value health. So therefore, I need to carve out time on a Sunday and cook a big batch of dinners for the week ahead so that I'm not living on takeaways so that five nights out of seven, I can actually eat a home cooked meal or something like that. Or what I care, what do I care about? I really care about friendship. And I've been putting all my energy into work and my immediate family. And I've let some friendships go. And they are so fun. And they are you know, they've been so kind to me over the years. I want to put some more focus back on that because that's soul food. That's just as good for our health as a bowl of vegetables. You know, it's we we forget that health is made up of not just obviously our food and our drink, but the way that we feel and what we think, all of that. So our soul food, I think, is just as important. So, yeah, I think the best question is what do I care about and then go act on that. I love that. What what do you personally care about? What brings you joy and enriches your life outside of all of this work that you do? Uh, raising chickens. <laughs> I love chickens. Oh. And um, my chickens' names, Moira, Alexis and Stevie, because I watched Shit's Creek a few <laughs> years ago and loved that show so much. And every human needs a chicken called Alexis. I love that. Um, and Moira. And she's so noisy. She just talks nonstop. Their names really suit them. Anyway, uh, so that's been such a joy. And it's funny because they're, they're so perfect. that I look at them and the colour and the shape of their body and their fluffy bums, they're just so perfect and yet they're so different. Their personalities are different. Their colouring is different. It's a great then analogy for humans. You just look at how no matter what the outside looks like, they we're just so perfect, perfectly yeah. imperfect, perfect, you know, no matter what is going on, what, whatever behaviour is being displayed, whatever they look like that day, if the feathers are a bit dishevelled, whatever. Anyway, yeah, I'm that person who would bring a chicken, my chickens up in a conversation when I haven't even been asked about them. So I've had to try to tone that back, to be honest. <laughs> You're like all those cat memes, but you replace it with a chicken. Yeah. That's it. That's me. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, I could talk to you all day, but something I do Same. with all of um, all of my guests before we leave is if we were to take a beat right now, so it's it's essentially a forced pause or a forced moment of mindfulness, um, you know, where we focus our awareness and our attention on what we're we're feeling and our and sensing in this in this actual moment. Would you share with me? Would you take a beat yourself and share with me yours? What I'm feeling in this moment? Mm -hmm. uh, absolute excitement, complete. Uh, I've, that's my senses to do that. I've had this <laughs> I wish you guys could see. There's like, I'm, it's like 
Dr. Libby's reaching across and giving me a giant hug, like her hands <laughs> are out <laughs> past the computer screen. Yeah, very, very expansive sort of heart-expanding moment because of the conversation we've just had because of I've been sitting here, for, for everyone listening, I've been sitting here looking at Steph's glowing face. She smiles. She's very connected. She's very, <laughs> she is very present um, when we're speaking and that gives me, I guess, permission to speak very freely and open-heartedly and, yeah, I've loved your question. So I feel... Um, yeah, I really hope that this is yeah of real value to to others, but it's been a value to me because it's um you've allowed me to express my, I've expressed myself very freely in your presence, and I thank you for that. So, yeah, very, very that excitement, enthusiasm, but this expansion and real heart connection uh, uh, because we've just had this lovely chat. So, thank you. No, thank you. The pleasure is is absolutely all mine. I always learn so much from you. You are just um, forever in the pursuit of helping other uh, other women and men live their uh, healthiest and happiest lives. So thank you for joining us on The Mindful Mess. It's been a true honour and uh, to pick your brain and I hope we can do it again soon. Yeah, me too. Steph, thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Mindful Mess. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and share from your favourite podcast platform. The Mindful Mess is proudly sponsored by Medibank. You're only human and what an incredible human you are.